You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that if you have a good sense of smell, you probably have a good sense of direction too. In a new neuroscience study, 57 young people were asked to navigate through a virtual town on a computer before being tested on how well they could get from one spot to another, and they analyzed how well they could smell. And after a sniff of 40 odor-infused felt-tip pens, the participants were shown four words on a screen and asked to choose the one that matched the smell. And on these totally unrelated tasks, the people who smelled better navigated better, which is not what you'd expect. And that's what the researchers at McGill University in Montreal found. They hypothesized that this is because the left orbitofrontal cortex and the right hippocampus were both bigger in the better smell. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com and better navigators. And when we know that part of the brain is tied to smelling, the hippocampus is known to be involved in both smelling and navigation. What you can do about this to hack yourself, I actually have no idea, but it's really cool that every day we're figuring out parts of the brain do things that we had no idea they were doing before. And what this means for you is that you might want to do whatever you can to keep all parts of your brain running really, really well. And that comes down to not eating toxic stuff, making your mitochondria work better, and having the right kinds of fat to build your brain structures and enough of the right kinds of proteins and amino acids to make neurotransmitters. And that's probably going to get you at least a good amount of the way there so you can smell better. Before we get into today's episode, I've got to ask, are you following me on social media? If you go to Instagram, I'm... What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. Dave.Asprey. And I post all sorts of cool stuff related to the show and related to biohacking and other things that let you know what I actually do. And some of it's just pretty strange and others pretty educational. You'll enjoy it, dave.asprey on Instagram. And since we're talking about cool stuff, my new book coming out December 4th is available for presale. It's called Game Changers. And if you're a fan, you like that question at the end of the show, what if I spent thousands of hours statistically analyzing all of those answers and came up 
with what most people agree on and built laws and rules around those. Instead of saying, do this because this one successful person did it, I'm actually telling you, this is what most of us agree on, so maybe you should prioritize this more. It's called Game Changers, and you can find it on your favorite online bookseller. Dave Asprey Game Changers. Find it, order it, and you have my gratitude in advance for ordering it before it hits shelves. Today's guest is Andrew Herr. He created something called Performance Intelligence after research on the future of human performance for the U.S. Department of Defense, and this is the first time his company is coming out of stealth mode here on Bulletproof Radio. And for a decade, Andrew led DOD efforts on human enhancement, envisioning the good, the bad, and the ugly of future warfighter enhancement and developing strategies for the military to capitalize on opportunities. Talk about biohacking amazingness. And... Those efforts included research and development strategy, warfighter bioethics, developing a systems approach to physiology of leadership under stress, and working with generals and elite operators on unique challenges he probably won't talk about because he's not allowed to. He also has a crazy education trifecta, master's in health physics, master's in microbiology and immunology, and a master's in security studies which means if anyone on earth is qualified to be a biohacker, I'm pretty sure that the security studies has something to do with hacking because that's my background, but he's got really crazy knowledge about things that you've probably never heard of. This is going to be a very fun interview. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave. Awesome to be here. Andrew, today we're recording live at the XPRIZE event in Southern California where Bulletproof is sponsoring a part of the event to help solve one of the world's big problems like how to feed a billion people or how to raise small farmers out of poverty, or how to bring electricity to the third world and stuff like that. So thank you for coming in to the hotel here to record. It's great to be here. It's one of the most beautiful places on earth. And if you combine beautiful places with amazing goals, I think uh, I think we're gonna get there faster. Now stuff you've done has been published by Wired, Joint Force Quarterly, Defense News, and other things that most of us haven't heard of. But Wired actually said that your job was to think about biological modifications whose effects you said were more than evolutionary. Are you a transhumanist? I'm not a transhumanist, but I don't see any reason that I can't upgrade myself. And I really feel strongly that we actually have an ethical obligation to help our warfighters enhance themselves if they want to, and they really, really, really want to enhance themselves. (laughs) I've had a few... Uh, special forces uh, or Navy SEAL uh, types on the show. And I know many more in my personal life. And you're right. These are people who will do anything to perform better because they know their life could depend on it. And it's just a personality type thing. And so you've been steeped in that world for quite a while. Totally. So we know not only that it's a personality thing, but actually there's some really amazing studies showing that you can see physiological differences between people who make it, let's say, into special ops units versus those who don't. And it's all about how their brain handles stress um, and how they process information in those situations. And so it's not surprising that these people are totally cool with taking measured risks, especially when they know what they're doing and they've practiced it before. Did the U.S. Army actually give you an award for being a mad scientist? They do have a program called Mad Scientist where they're trying to get out of their box and, and get ready for the future of things. And um, I don't know whether I should be proud or embarrassed to say that I am one of the few two-time award winners of the Mad Scientist Award. You also judge at the International Genetically Engineered Machine Competition. 
how could you not be a transhumanist? And for people listening who don't know what the transhumanist movement is, this is a movement of people who say we have a, I would call it a moral obligation to transcend our own biology. And I, I don't know that I'm ready to call myself a transhumanist. I feel like my biology has a lot of runway I haven't taken advantage of yet. But when I fully maxed out all of my hardware, I'm open to adding upgrades, but I really don't want to miss a launching arm right now. I'm happy with the ones I have. So, so when you say you're not a transhumanist, is that a similar mindset? Yeah, my mindset's more aligned with yours. It's like, we have so many opportunities. Why not keep going on this runway? And, you know, look, we already have, you know, these super powerful computers that are, you know, usually for people a few millimeters away from their skin, it's like an iPhone in your pocket or whatever you use. So there's already a lot of tech and, and I love tech myself, but I think there's ways to upgrade ourselves like you're doing, like you're pushing for, and I, I want to keep pushing that runway. Um, and so the, the iGEM or this international genetically engineered machine competition isn't just about humans. It's also about how we can use biology as a technology. And so, um, you can create tank armor, you can grow tank armor, uh, in a vat, for example. And like you get wild ideas that by the way are real, um, in addition to the medical and, and performance aspects. So I think we need to think about biology um, as Rob Carlson, who's the Carlson curve or the guy who first plotted this incredible speed with which DNA sequencing was falling in price and increasing in speed. Like we need to think of biology as a technology and how can we leverage it as an opportunity for ourselves and also to do good for the world. Here at the XPRIZE event where we're recording, uh, Neil Stevenson, the famous science fiction author whose books helped really to shape my worldview as a, a cyberpunk in the early 90s, if that means anything to you, it's because you're a super dork. It means you wore like mirror sunglasses and leather jackets and hacked phone systems because computers were too boring to hack, if that's a pretty good explanation. So the 14 hackers from the old school who are listening, I'm leet, you are too. Anyway, sorry for the digression there. So we have this crazy science fiction author who I think is the best writer of the late 20th century, hands down from all genres. Uh, and he writes about the stuff that you're actually doing. You're living in the land of science fiction. How much of this is happening? Well, maybe you can't answer the question because you're probably still security clearanced. But how much of William Gibson or Neil Stevenson's type of science fiction stuff is happening in a lab somewhere? Would you guess? I would guess, great way to put it, I would guess that we are moving faster than most people assume towards the future he predicted. Um, and I think it's scarily accurate. Look, we're everybody wants to be able to uh, more finely control biology to do these amazing things like upgrade yourself or cure mental illness. Um, but if you can finely tune biology, it's not just a world where you can do good things with that, right? You can do, you could finely tune someone's biology to do something they don't want. So I think we're definitely moving towards a world um, like he writes about. Um, and I think we need to think a lot about that. Um, and it's actually really interesting how I think it merges with the enhancement world and upgrading ourselves, because the only way you're going to know if somebody's messing with your physiology is by monitoring your performance. Because if somebody yeah. is messing with physiology and it doesn't affect you, then it doesn't really matter. But if it's affecting your performance and you're tracking that, then you have an opportunity to be like, what's going on here? One of the reasons that I I chose the name biohacking for the community and the movement that, that's come together around this. By the way, biohacking was added to the dictionary a couple of weeks ago. Merriam-Webster's made it an official new word in the English language, and yours truly was in the definition, which is awesome. Congrats. But this whole idea of that is that hackers are the people who break 
into systems or they create open source systems so you can see the source code. And my take on this after 20 years is that there's all kinds of technologies that modify our biology that no one knows about. So if we put these in the hands of people like you and me and everyone listening, then A, we might do something unique with it, but B, if someone else is using it, at least we know what's going on and we can take appropriate countermeasures because a definition of hell, and I really wish I remembered who I was quoting on this, but a definition of hell is a world filled with technology that you don't control. <laughs> yeah, so you know, I think there's some things um, that we should be allowed to do to ourselves. There's very few things we should be allowed to do to other people without their consent. But getting back to this idea that almost all these soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, especially special ops, men and women, like they want to do it. And so, you know, if we take the ethical idea that we should have informed consent, which is great, then let people do these things and enhance themselves because, like you said, we're going to learn things. And, um, you know, I'm not saying we, there are certain things we shouldn't do, but we should definitely be experimenting and tracking down ideas that seem crazy because, um, if it's, if it seems crazy and it works and you don't do it, then you're at a huge disadvantage. You mean like increasing your IQ by 20 points or something like that? Right. So if there, somebody has <laughs> a program to enhance the IQ of all the kids in their country and you don't figure that out for 20 years and they have a whole generation, like maybe you've already lost. Well, my, my book game changers has a section on a technique that I use that raised my IQ by 12 points. And when I first blogged about this at the start of Bulletproof, people like, that that's impossible. It can't be done. And you get this stupid mindset from people saying that can't happen. Therefore it didn't. I'm like, well, here's my data. It looked like it happened to me. I, I feel smarter. The data shows I'm smarter. So, okay. Am I a unicorn or what? And it is hard for me to believe that the military is thinking along these lines because the reputation of the military and the government in general is that they're not always cutting edge. So are you this little, uh, little bubble of excellence uh, or innovation within what's generally the $200 for a spoon sort of supply chain reputation going on here? Yeah. So there are pockets of awesome stuff being done. Um, you've talked to some people who are in these like hyper elite units. Yeah. Um, but what nobody was doing for the most part was fighting for this to happen faster for all these resources. The military has tens of billions of dollars in research and development money every year. Like what if we throw that and people who want to be involved and start doing it, not just for this hyper elite people, but for the broader force. And you suddenly have a million people who you could help biohack themselves. So I was pushing uh, very strongly uh, let's say in language that wasn't um, the norm inside these like vaulted halls and people were just trying to go slow and be risk averse. So um, I was definitely a voice yelling um, in a little bit of a wilderness. That makes sense because if I look at what I would do to hack our military to perform better, fix the food. And in fact, I'm pretty excited because we're in the late stages of hopefully getting a bulletproof into military a supply for families, at least so they can buy it on bases. Uh, but I've had people deployed on the ground in Afghanistan or Iraq, you know, email and say, like, what's the best way for me to do this in the field? Because I really need this kind of energy so I don't die. And yet we're giving them, you know, garbage corn syrup and who knows what else is in the food. Did you ever tell them uh, fastest upgrade? eat your vegetables uh not only that 
Um, in fact, I had a bit of a contentious meeting with the senior general in the entire army responsible for this, where I said that <laughs> what they fat? were, um, she was not fat, okay. <laughs> but, um, the person, the other, her technical advisors in the room were like, but that'd be expensive, but we're not sure we can do that. And I was like, this is the most obvious thing you could do. <laughs> Uh, not only that, but I ran, I actually then took and ran a 350 uh, soldier double blind placebo controlled study where we gave them a basic supplement stack and made sure they had healthy or performance food options. And then they ate in the dining cafeteria like everyone else. They We gave them training on what they should be eating, right. but they didn't. we didn't control them. They could eat whatever they want. And in eight weeks, we had a 50% improvement in mood scores, 25% on sleep, and they dropped 30 seconds off their two-mile runs. I, I think I just developed a man crush. Uh, so you you showed the military, this is what's going on. And when they say it's expensive, do you know how expensive it is to have someone get shot on a battlefield and have to be pulled out? That costs a lot more than feeding dozens of soldiers top-notch food for a year. So just the thinking, though, it's not my budget. Is that sort of how it came down? Yeah, there's a huge bureaucratic problem here. So, for example, if you take the people on a military base who are responsible for the performance of the troops, that's one line of command. But the people who are responsible for the dining halls typically is actually a totally different chain of command because that's the base commander instead of the unit commander. It's this series of wild bureaucratic problems that I don't really wit. Well, I do wish on our, our enemies, but I don't really <laughs> wish on anyone else. <laughs> All right. Speaking of, quote, our enemies, what country would you guess is most advanced in hacking their military biology, like making super soldiers? Uh, I'm not going to answer that question. Okay. You may not be allowed to. I would China. say Sorry. that any country <laughs> that has uh, a moral frame where they see um, the individual as subservient to the group and any country that has the technology and, um, has the money to do it is somebody to think about because we all know there's huge opportunities to increase performance if you hack your people. So especially if you don't mind them dying 20 years early, especially okay. what is the craziest human upgrade hack that you propose to the military that you can talk about? I understand if there are some things you can't talk about. Um, so because the military is kind of risk averse, like once you get to supplements, they're already getting nervous. Oh, so, um, but it's pretty clear that there are a series of, for example, hormonal approaches to performance enhancement that run a wide gamut that might not just be, you know, the standard ideas about testosterone and other things, but, um, one of the things I worked on for the military was uh, why some units can go into combat and handle just unimaginable stress and have people being shot and they perform well and why there's fall apart. And there's this huge trust component there. And Oxytocin. so if there's ways to modify trust, like, wow, that would be wild. Uh, at the last Bulletproof conference, uh, we had everyone do an exercise that raises oxytocin very measurably in about 90% of people who do the exercise. And oxytocin is one of those trust-building hormones that is not going to be present in normal combat. So that, that's something that just top of mind when I hear that, saying, what would happen if you had an oxytocin nasal spray for you in combat? I have no idea, but someone should try that. So these kinds of things have been discussed, it turns out, and um, to my knowledge, not put into practice in the military, although there's been a number of studies where you use oxytocin nasal sprays and people do seem to be more trusting. 
Although there's also some studies where people are more likely to punish the out group. So you trust your in group and punish your out group. So there's all kinds of these crazy interaction effects, um, which is why we need to do the studies, but let's do the studies. How far away from Wolverine are we? My guess is that injecting liquid metal into <laughs> your bones, especially the ones that make your red and white blood cells, is a bad idea. Damn it. Um, that being said, look, the DARPA, which is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, basically the military's like mad scientist lab. Dude, I want your job. Can I just tell you? <laughs> Anytime. <Dave. laughs> I'm just kidding. Keep going. Like they plugged a computer into someone's brain. Like they've already done that, right? They funded the research. Yeah. And this woman flew an F-35 fighter jet simulator with her brain. So that's research really meant to be able to help people who are injured because you probably don't want to crack most people's skulls yeah. um, for various inflammatory reasons. And you don't really need to crack someone's skulls. Some of the signal acquisition stuff we've got at 40 Years of Zen, it's pretty good. Like I, I want to build Cerebro. I don't think it's that impossible. You might need a special brain to do it, but some of the neurofeedback cutting edge stuff, you can use that to control systems and you don't have to penetrate the skull and get bacterial infections and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, there's some wild stuff going on, um, like using the vagus nerve as a highway, as an information highway to send information up to the brain, uh, in addition to using it to modulate inflammation and other stuff. So there's a bunch of ways to do it. I don't, I don't expect that I'll ever, at least not in the next 20 years, have somebody crack my skull, hopefully. Um, but I think, you know, accessing the brain in a, in a way that is um, higher fidelity is a huge opportunity. How upgraded are you? Uh, I'm pretty upgraded. I do the more intensive stuff. I have the lighting tuned in my house. I love I love red light. I am super oh, yeah. influenced by red light. Um, I think I'm like a three sigma responder to it. Um, yeah, there's one sitting right behind you on the couch, one of the new true light lamps. And okay, so red light, we're totally in alignment on that. And this one has yellow too, which does different things. Cool. Um, you know, supplements across the anti-inflammatory, mitochondria, gut, the whole health thing. Okay. Um, I actually probably work out more and harder than would be optimal for my health because I one of my like hobbies is to do long ultra marathon type races. So that might not be good for me, but I have so much fun with it that I think it's good for me on net. All right. Any implants? Uh, no implants now. I think most of those things I don't actually want inside my body. A lot of the <laughs> stuff that's been developed is probably leaching metals and stuff that I don't need. But, um, you know, that's a future we could get to. My wife and I, uh, in the mid-2000s, started a company that was doing white blood cell proliferation testing for implant materials. And there are people who have an immune response not mediated by antibodies to gold, to titanium, to the 2% nickel in their implants that isn't disclosed on the manufacturer's insert. And the the normal medical approach, no antibodies, no inflammation, saying, uh, why are the white blood cells going crazy? So I'm not planning to get implants anytime soon. I think my epidural barrier is perfectly just fine, but I am very happy to stick electrodes all over my body and get electricity in and out. You do that? Yeah, in fact, I've been playing around recently with AccuStim, so or uh, electroactive medicine, where they use acupuncture and then put electrical currents in through the needles. Yeah, um, at the right frequencies, it's been it's been good. Well, this is totally random, but related. 
I have a couple dachshunds. Well, I had a couple. And one of them uh, ruptured three discs in his back and was paralyzed to the point incontinence, walking around like a little mermaid. And he was actually a jerk. Uh, he's actually he's still around. He's just not our dog. We gave him to a friend. But they wanted to do a $10,000 neurosurgery on the dog. And as much as I love my dogs, I said, Lana, <laughs> he's a dog. <laughs> we could fund a scholarship for that. Like that. That's not okay just from a moral perspective from where I sit. Uh, so... Uh, instead we did electroacupuncture and we did a series of about 10 sessions with a therapist who put acupuncture needles into his ruptured discs, ran the right electrical current over it and put him on a water treadmill. And six or seven years later, he's still perfectly functioning, non-paralyzed dog. So we took paralyzed for six weeks, unable <laughs> to control things back to running around barking and trying to dominate everyone in the house. Uh, so that stuff is powerful. What are you using it for? Cause you don't look like you've been peeing on yourself. Um, I have not been, that's not my thing, but if it's yours, yeah, whatever. <laughs> um, I've been using it because I'm sort of pushing my performance on these. I do like the Spartan ultra yeah. 30 mile races. And so, um, I'm just using it to speed up some recovery from an injury I picked up and, uh, it's going fast. You inject peptides. Um, I've done some different injectables. Um, I don't regularly do peptides only because, um, I used to live in DC and there's just less going on with that kind of stuff out there. But now that I live on the West coast, there's a lot more access and uh, to all kinds of more advanced uh, techniques. There's a lot going on there. And for the last four or so years, I've been uh, using different peptides in for different things, depending on what you're trying to do. And some of it isn't that well studied, but it has very noticeable effects. And some of it comes from Russia with writing on it that you can't read. But hey, I'll give it a shot. <laughs> so you're uh, um, you're familiar with them, but it's interesting that you're noting there's less of a of an East Coast perspective on that, which definitely maps what I've seen. Even meeting with uh, when I started Bulletproof, uh, an investment bank asked me to fly around to meet hedge fund managers around the world to talk about cognitive upgrades. And the reason they did it was that. They said, look, we're sales guys and the hedge fund managers won't talk to us. But if we bring you with us, they'll let us in the room. Uh, so I had this series of meetings, including globally. So I went to China and Singapore and I think Malaysia uh, and Japan and all over Europe. And there's a very different mindset in each country, at least for the investment banker things. And the guys on the West Coast were just all in. And the guys on the East Coast were just wearing suits and, and a little bit more suspicious. So you, you encountered that same sort of a divide? Yeah, I did. And I, I mean, I think it's changing a little bit on the East Coast because yeah. people are actually just seeing the advantage. I mean, I um, when I moved from working entirely with the military to also doing work in the commercial space, I started to see that people were using human performance as a like a business tool in really awesome ways. So my favorite story, although my clients didn't like it, was they were flying from the East Coast to Asia. They'd land in Seoul, Korea around 3, 4 p.m. There's a business dinner that night yep. with tons of booze. And you wake up the next morning and the negotiation started at 7 a.m. And they quickly realized that their Korean counterparts were using jet lag and hangovers as negotiating tools. And so they came to me and they're like, Andrew, we're getting killed here. And so then I started developing, it was actually the start of my work on jet lag that um, has been a really fun project and is sort of coming to fruition now. But this idea that people are using human performance as a business tool is um, it's getting bigger. 
it's definitely one of the reasons I called the original blog the Bulletproof Executive because we had all these, especially when I put on my 20-year-ago-in-Silicon-Valley hat, we had all these incredibly out-of-shape, relatively puffy-like-me entrepreneurs and geeks and, you know, coders and tech people. And we... It was almost sort of if you exercised, you're one of those weird people. And if you meditated, you're definitely crazy pants because there's no rational basis for it. And I wanted to use the language of human performance to say, guys, being a CEO or writing code for 12 hours is actually hard. It's cognitively demanding. So what if you had more? And that population cares as much as special forces guys about kicking ass. They just kick ass on a different board, but they're still playing a game. Uh, So I, I believe that, like you're saying, it's crossed over. And if you look at the the tech CEOs, what they look like now, you can see, in fact, at this event, uh, the XPRIZE event, there's some incredibly successful people here. These are people who write million dollar checks to fund private exploration of space kind of people. I'm lucky they let me in the door. And they look different than they would have 10 years ago because all of them realize, well, I have hundred million dollars. Maybe I should spend a million on making myself feel good because who cares if you have money if you feel like crap all the time? And so I've seen this shift of, of people in that economic sphere and the stuff they're doing is like stem cells. It's trickling down and it's becoming more affordable and it's just becoming in demand. So you go to the store and you can buy stuff that's actually what they would have used five years ago. And um, do, you, do you have further hope for that? I mean, do you, do you see military technologies hitting the, you know, the ultra wealthy and then and then trickling down so that all of us can afford it? Yeah, so I think, um, I actually think it's gonna take a different path. So it used to be technologies were developed in the military, you know, so all these red lights we have now, and the first red lasers came from military need to be able to target things in infrared, so you couldn't see that there was a target on your back, literally. Um, And so then the technology came to the private sector. I think what's happening now is there's tech being developed at the very highest end in the private sector, then some of it's bouncing into the military and out, um, or some of it's just gonna come broadly. But one thing I'm really hopeful for is, so there's like a million people roughly in uniform in the US military. If you could get even a little bit of this knowledge to a million Americans, that would start, I think, help to catalyze this process that this knowledge gets um, to be much more widespread. And also because um, the military is, for example, primarily recruited from the South. That's an area where there's less biohacking on average going on. Yeah. Um, you know, so I think just as um, like before the technology flowed in the private sector, now I think actually the military might be an opportunity to flow some of the tech into um, the broader American population. And actually it follows a, a really fascinating pattern, which is that even though I think you and I both agree that the USDA's recommendations are maybe not ideal, <laughs> Um, garbage i'm sorry exactly um but actually those came about because there was a fear that the american population wasn't well nourished enough to fight in the military and so that's the whole genesis of food stamps and other stuff was to make sure that we had a population ready to fight and the funny thing is that the population today is less prepared for basic training than in any time in history so that was what i think technically we call a fail with a capital f yes i mean i think it it started off well, and then um, and I got co-opted by the wrong business interests, and here we are. Hmm. I want to go back to human upgrades. The very craziest soldier upgrade that you can imagine that you can talk about. Like when you put on your 20-year-out hat, 
what is the most expensive bionic man super soldier from any country on the planet going to look like? I think, well, I don't know if this is going to happen in 20 years. I actually don't think it will. But if it does, I think the craziest one would be something that can not only, you know, sort of read what's going on in your brain, but then because someone else has an implant on the side of their head that can understand how to then put information into the other person's brain. Like, I'm not so interested in being able to, like, send, like, a message to somebody right like i can text them or i can talk to them and there's all kinds of technology but if i could give you an idea fully formed i think that would change innovation it would change strategy it would change the speed with which we do everything because of this crazy concept that like you could understand me right away um, and that also has these huge implications for culture. So one of my favorite comments in a military forum was we were talking about what was going to be different 20 years from now and what would be the same. I, I almost don't want to say this, but I know how to do that. Uh, and I'm probably not going to tell you how <laughs> because it's kind of dangerous. Um, but uh, I definitely have some experience of that. Uh, and, but by the way, sending a fully formed thought that you choose is much harder than just letting information slip uh, using the technique uh, that I'm aware of uh, that does involve technology. And when I look at that though, and, and just by saying that, there's a bunch of people right now in their cars going, that's a bunch of crap. And all right, fine. My experience may be invalid. However, it was my experience. So uh, I, I'm looking for ways, not just in the military, but just in general, to get people to ask the, the what if question. Well, okay, what if this is possible? Are there any examples that are even halfway credible in all of recorded human history of this happening? If so, we just took the impossible away and we made it improbable. And then we can start doing real science. But as long as we have impossible, you won't do science on it because you already know it's impossible. How did you go about removing impossible from the way you think? So for me, um, like I think, my frame says, um, you know, we call stuff science if we can describe it and explain it. But we call stuff art if we can describe it but can't explain it. And if you look at history, there's just so many obvious parts where are situations where art becomes science that we suddenly understand something that we couldn't understand before. Um, that there's just no way to say that things are impossible. Um, I just, I just don't think it's logical actually to say that almost anything is impossible also because the laws of physics change like people always <laughs> say, as long as it doesn't break the laws of physics, but there's a class of materials called metamaterials yeah. where, you know, normally if you shine light on something, it bounces back. Um, but metamaterials, the light bounces the other way and it's like, that's impossible except it's real. And there was another guy who slowed light down going through a certain substance oh the speed of light might be variable and i mean the list goes on and on in fact uh, nasim harim was on a guy who was a skier for 20 years who made some math that better predicts the standard model by four percent than any other math and of course the answer was that's impossible because you're not a quantum physicist <laughs> so in my house we we don't use the word can't we don't use the word impossible and my kids will call me on it if I do, and I'll call them out on it. And it simply comes down to, we don't know how, or it hasn't been done, or we don't have the resources to do it the way we think, but 
we simply have no data to say anything is impossible. We can say, it seems highly unlikely that you're going to you know, fly to the center of the sun under your own power without a spacesuit and survive. I'm not going to say it's impossible. I've never seen one do it. I think it's highly unlikely. I'm not going to spend my life learning how to do it. But God damn it, maybe somebody will, and I don't know. And if so, I want to meet that person, right? Did your parents teach you that? Yeah, I mean, so I was raised at the adults table. Oh. Um, and I have two brothers. And I think actually having siblings you're really close with helps that a lot too, because um, you know, you were saying you can share, you've, you've used the technology that allows you to share a fully formed idea. Well, how many times have I been able to look at my brother and know exactly what he's thinking? Well, there you go. Right. So I've done that. Um, and then I was raised with all kinds of counterfactual and hypothetical questions that were just like, well, but what if this happened? And the answer, and then you have to actually think through all of the potential ways that could happen. So my dad's a doctor. And so I grew up around medicine, but not around necessarily just traditional standard of care medicine, um, because my dad's a really inventive guy. And so he figured out some crazy things uh, really early. So for example, he was seeing patients come in who were on beta blockers, which are a class of blood pressure drugs that block the effects of adrenaline. And he was seeing early on that these people were noticing performance changes because it can help people block stage fright. And so he was really on in, in understanding that um, many prescription drugs have multiple effects, including not the ones you thought, and not all the side effects are bad. I have helped uh, a few friends over the years with massive stage fright. Like, look, I can teach you heart variability. I can teach you these other things. You're going to get somewhere. But unless you go really deep and find whatever trauma is scaring you, take a beta blocker and raise your funding or give your TED talk or whatever. And it absolutely works. It's one of those, I, I, I don't like calling them nootropics because they're blunting your adrenal response, but it works. And so your dad picked this up way early. Yeah, super early. And, and so I was around that kind of milieu, which was like, what's, what can we do? And, um, you know, I was around some other people in my life who weren't afraid to do things to help themselves that were, you know, they were ethical, but they were helping themselves. What ways of helping yourself through upgrading are unethical? Um, I think basically ones that are hurting other people um, are probably are, you know, obviously each situation is complicated, but one, if you're doing something to someone else and they haven't consented, like they haven't said, oh, yeah. I want to be part of that. But, uh, and then if you're putting a burden on society because of something you're doing to yourself, then I think then there's a, a whole larger discussion. But for the most part, um, I'm a huge fan of informed consent. The military did some really wildly unethical stuff yeah. in the past like testing chemical weapons on our own soldiers um, at low doses. But still, things that have these horrible sequelae, um, you do not want exposure to organophosphate, anything. So we've done stuff, bad stuff in the past, but it all had to do with breaking this informed consent thing. But now people are scared to do things even when they have informed consent. And that's a problem on the other side, because maybe now instead of enhancing our soldiers, you're letting them go into combat and get killed. It's a, an ethical conundrum, and it's one that crosses over to professional sports. I wish we would just get it over with and say, look, you can use upgrades. You just have to tell everyone what you're doing and work with a doctor so we can all learn from the fact that you have 400 pounds of muscle or whatever the heck you did. I, I'm just, I'm, I'm so tired of the double standard out there. Uh, I would be way more interested in sports if we took the gloves off of our athletes, especially if you're 45 and you want to be competing as 25-year-olds and you're not allowed to have bioidentical testosterone like when you're 25, that's just plain mean. 
Like, like how can that be ethical? Do you have anything to say about professional sports? Yeah. I mean, what people also don't realize is if you look at the physiology of a lot of professional athletes, they have mutations that are <laughs> wild. So like, for example, I was recently working with a guy and he basically, as best I can tell, like doesn't make sex hormone, sex hormone binding globulin. Oh, wow. So basically like all his testosterone is free testosterone. So his testosterone levels are normal, but it's the equivalent of like taking tons of steroids and so, or Tony Robbins like makes human growth hormone beyond belief, which is one reason he's so tall. And that that man, he he breaks medical rules. I just interviewed him, and he's talking about just the pounding he takes when he's on stage, and it's superhuman level stuff that, frankly, would put most of us in the hospital. Yeah. So I think we have to understand that we live in an X Men world. Like, yeah. If we all assume that everyone is genetically, environmentally the same, then that's just wrong, right? We know that's uh, empirically not true. And so we live in an X-Men world, except instead of people naturally, you know, putting lasers out of their eyes, they handle stress differently or their bodies regenerate differently. And so that already exists. Now, look, if you want to have a rule that you can't do it, then it's unethical to break it. But it's getting to the point where it's kind of silly at this point because we know everyone's breaking it and they're just finding new things and new ways because it works. I just wish that they'd share the data, right? Even athletes who are not breaking those rules. And I've interviewed a few just stellar human beings who are at the very top of their field as athletes. And some of them, I know because we've become friends and I'm not going to out anyone about it, but they're using red light. They're using hyperbaric. They're using cryo, a lot of the stuff that's at Upgrade Labs. And it's all within the rules. But it'd be so cool if they could actually just publish that. Hey, here's what I do. Because people who have arthritis or people who are weakened warriors might benefit from knowing that. But we have this sort of weird, it happens in the locker room. And I, I just want to break that paradigm because I think everyone has a demand at that level on them at some point in life. Even if you're just, okay, I just worked 10 hours. I got a two hour commute home and I want to be present for my kids. That's hard. And if there's a way to get an upgrade there, I feel a moral obligation that 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 knowledge should be everywhere. Yeah, so I basically agree. And I'm I'm really excited that in actually one area, we're going to have the military play the pivotal role in in breaking this huge political deadlock, which is, you know, there's been all these studies now on using psychedelics for PTSD and yes. other problems. And I know you've talked about this. And if the initial studies bear out where you have like an 80% cure rate, these things that are just, like, yeah, I, I would call them unbelievable if it wasn't good science. Um, but, you know, nobody in Congress that I can imagine is going to vote against curing a veteran. So my hope is that actually in that case, the veterans are the key to breaking a logjam because for things like psychedelics, you actually need legislation to deschedule these drugs and things like that. And making it illegal for scientists to study anything is really a bad idea. However, having oversight, if you want to study you know, plague viruses or something, great. But for everything else, how about we get out of the labs and just let science be? All right, let's talk about another kind of science, an area that you and I have a lot of passion about. A while ago, I had to commute from the west coast of the US to Cambridge, England. I did this once a month for a week for 18 months. Anyone who's traveled globally knows traveling from west to east kicks your ass. And traveling that far on a, on a direct flight, whether it's red eye or not, it just, it takes it out of you. And so I, I had this 18-month window where I got to do all these tests, and I would test exercise and food and 
it turns out earthing accidentally, if I did yoga outdoors when I landed as my exercise, I somehow felt better. And later I found the data on grounding. I said, that's why that worked. And I tested melatonin and all sorts of stuff and ended up to the point today where I don't experience jet lag anymore. But you've been working with special forces guys who literally fly you know, 22 time zones away or something, uh, go a polar orbit and then jump out and do superhuman things. They have jet lag beyond anyone and sleep disruption beyond anyone I know of any population I've met other than maybe uh, some singers who are in a different city during when they're touring, they're in an equally bad situation. So you've perfected some jet lag uh, protocols and put them together um, for people. Tell me how you hack jet lag using your three degrees and your your superhuman, super soldier, hack the world kind of mentality. Andrew, school me on jet lag. I think jet lag's cool. I mean, I hate jet lag, <laughs> but I think like the, the science behind it is wild because um, almost nobody appreciates that there's a massive inflammatory event when you're flying. And this is not just because you're sitting in a chair and it's not just because the air isn't great, which it's not, but it turns out that the pressure changes when you fly are causing your immune system to freak out. And I only figured this out because I was working with Navy SEALs on diving where you have these enormous pressure changes. And it turns out that when they dive, they have these effects. And so been able to track this back into flying And so what happens is if you can turn off the inflammatory event and then you can calm down, you kind of pet your immune system, make it feel comfortable and relaxed. Um, And then what you also want to do is handle the fact that like your pulse oxygen, the oxygen saturation, how much you have in your blood can drop by like 20 or 30%. Basically like, like you have sleep apnea almost. I've measured Um, that. And flight attendants don't get it by the way. I've measured them too. Um, that basically if you can turn off the inflammation and help your body, including your mitochondria through this, um, period of low oxygen, um, then you're in a place to shock your circadian rhythm into a new time zone. And, um, it's really cool because you actually have to do your central and your peripheral circadian rhythm. So everyone's thinking about caffeine in the brain, but it turns out your body and your gut and everything else has its own circadian clock. So you have to shock both of them. And so what I've been developing is uh, I really want to merge the bioactives like supplements and the light and other things with an app that tells you when to do things. So even if you're not Dave and just know every (laughs) single thing about yourself, you shouldn't have to, then you can still do it and you can land and be ready to go and you're going to win the negotiation. I flew to uh, Dubai uh, and didn't get any jet lag at all using the kind of things that you're talking about. And it jet lag has left my life as an issue when I fly, which given the schedule as a CEO and you know, doing some of the TV things that I do, I like Dr. Osnall, it's been liberating for me to just not pay the cost. Cause when I, when I was younger, it took me four days to feel human when I would fly, uh, at least if I would cross more than three time zones. And I think it gets worse as you age for most people. And the reason it gets worse as you age is um, because your inflammatory system is more sensitive and your mitochondria don't work as well. And so this actually you see in people, let's say, who are overweight or have inflammatory things, they'll tell you, I just get killed with jet lag. It's funny because I had like the diseases of aging when I was young, the high risk of stroke and heart attack, obesity, uh, prediabetes, and a long list of other things. And so it, it just was torturous and i've actually increased my mitochondrial function and i've reversed all the other conditions to the point maybe i'm just more resilient but even now if i don't 
you control the light exposure and I eat the wrong stuff and you, know, you, you don't time things right, the next day, like, oh, I think I need a lot of extra smart drugs today. And, or maybe a modafinil, which I quit taking after enough of this hacking where I just don't use it regularly because I, I just don't get that big of a kick from it. Is modafinil on your list? So um, when you're developing products, it turns out using prescription drugs is a tough way to develop products. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> um, but what I'm really, what's really fun is that actually we can do it without it. So when we turn off this uh, inflammatory response, you don't feel as sluggish, you don't hurt as much. Then you help the mitochondria, you feel sharper, and you just then you can just sort of like sledgehammer your circadian rhythm into place and uh, people feel great. And so basically we can do it without it. And I also like that, you know, some people are doing that Ambien plus modafinil and they also uh, don't realize that Ambien has this horrible hangover effect. No. It's worse in women. Women actually get killed with the dosing on that stuff. Um, so I want to, when I sent recently some fighter pilots, they were going from um, Asia to Alaska to train with the newest jets. One of the guys I sent, you know, did the program. He got there morning one. He's like doing the breeze ready to go. And everyone else who used Ambien and Modafinil was just sucking wind in the back. Yeah, I don't touch Ambien. Uh, that, that's even the, the sleep supplements that have valerian root and the other things that drug you out. I wake up with a hangover when I do that. So that's why they're not in the stuff that I formulate. Uh, so is your app available yet? So actually, we've been in stealth mode developing this, and this is the first time I'm talking about it publicly. You're not because, in stealth mode anymore, sorry. <laughs> welcome to Bulletproof Radio. Um, so we're going to be taking people into the beta test program at performanceintelligence.com. Okay, and you just crashed your website. Sorry, man. I'm aware. Um, so it's a really exciting time, and um, this will be the first of a series of products. The second one will be on diving because of some of the same concepts we've learned, and uh, we'll go from there. Well, I would love to see one for high altitude mountaineering, which is something I did more of when I was younger. I'm to the point now, if I use Bulletproof Coffee and Keto Prime, I don't feel altitude the way I used to. And even some of the guys um, who've gone up Everest are doing that similar stack. And there's many more things that I do for my own inflammation and all. What would you do to hack climbing a mountain? So I think that the, I think there's a, a big role for inflammation. I yeah. think it's this, again, this pressure change that's happening too quickly for the human body to respond and, and it shouldn't happen, right? Very few people in human history climb mountains intentionally. So, um, I like what you're talking about, add the ketones. Cause if you don't have enough oxygen and you're not going to be burning glucose as efficiently, you know, so the kind of supplements you're talking about, I like, and then I think, I would just keep layering them on basically, yeah. you know, I love polyphenols. They're one oh, of my yeah. favorite thing in the world. I know you've done the hard work sourcing this stuff as a supplement and polyphenomenal. So I like that one. I would just basically keep layering these things on. And there's one thing I would add actually, oh, do tell, which is, you know, people get this vascular endothelial dysfunction at altitude. Yep. Um, so the lining of your blood vessels isn't working properly. I really like adding cocoa polyphenols to that stack. Yep because they really help with your endothelial function and they give you a little bit of boost of energy because there's usually some theobromine stuff in there too. So definitely eating dark chocolate is something a lot of people do, but they don't want to carry the weight. And there's really only one brand of cocoa polyphenols on the market, funny enough, made by Mars. And uh, I've definitely experimented with those and there's good data on, on them, uh, but decided because you need four capsules, I couldn't fit them in polyphenomenal. Uh, but that's a fantastic suggestion. 
Uh, and I've also looked at uh, things like MitoSweet, which is something that helps you make ATP. Um, and I, I've used that at altitude. What about amino acids? Do you play with those? Yeah. So I think, you know, that's a, I really like seeing what people's bodies are deficient in. Um, but, you know, for myself, um, interestingly, the like 5-HTP stuff doesn't do anything for yeah, me at all. I think it's overrated. The tyrosine stuff does. Oh, yeah. I, it's in a few of the things I formulate. Uh, when I was doing high-altitude stuff, L-glutamine uh, was something else that I appreciated. L-glutamine is an amino acid that helps your gut, helps your brain, but it takes you out of ketosis, but not if you're taking brain octane because brain octane is going to metabolize anyway. Do you use L-glutamine? Um, I haven't been using it, but um, I have some races at altitude coming up and I'll probably throw it in the stack. I would throw it in your water bottle. That's what I did. All right. I've got one more question for you. And it's a question you might be able to predict because I'm pretty sure you've heard the show before. Hoping you didn't prepare too much ahead of time. Someone comes to you tomorrow. I say, Andrew, based on your three degrees, based on your crazy work with the military and whatever you learned from your parents and all the other good stuff you've learned, I want three pieces of advice to help me perform better as a human being. What would you offer them? So I think the first one I would go with, which is basically the whole predicate for this show is experiment on yourself. And if you're going to do that, the one thing I want you to understand is the concept of a signal to noise ratio. Yeah. So, right. If you do something, if you make a hundred changes, there's going to be a, you don't know what actually helped you. But if you use too few changes and your body is varying and you don't know if you got good sleep last night, then um, you're actually not going to see the result, the signal from the noise. So what I think you should think about is how can you decrease the noise in your body? Diet is a huge start. Yeah. Getting decent sleep decreases the noise, meaning like the variability in your physiology. And then you can use onesie, twosie things that might or might not help you and really learn um, it's also the place to use wearables. You know, Dave and I are both wearing aura rings right now. Um, you know, I know when I slept well, I know when I didn't sleep well, but it might be hard to see a 5% difference. Yeah. And that's where the data helps. So experiment on yourself and be wary of the signal to noise ratio. Um, the second thing is um, be around people you trust. So it turns out that you have lower physiological stress responses when you're around people you trust. Um, and this is actually the basis of some work I did on unit cohesion for the military. But if you're around people you don't trust, then things crack when you're under high stress and things matter most typically when you're under high stress. So be around people you trust. I love that one. Um, and then the third one I would say is, um, find places in your life where you can see the progress you're making. Um, I was doing work with people in um, submarines and it turns out that the people who run the nuclear reactor in a submarine have the worst job in the world for your brain, which is stare at this bank of panel, this panel of different gauges. And if nothing changes, you've done a good job. Oh God. And basically the human brain is designed to learn not to focus on things if it doesn't get a reward, right? If you kept going hunting in this one part of the forest and you don't kill anything, then you need to learn not to do that. Right. And so actually most jobs today have these long continuous projects. People are doing things that have these maybe big paths, but they're really far in the future. So if you don't show yourself um, these like incremental goals where you actually achieve something, then you'll lose your ability to maintain um, forward progress. And I think that's really important. Andrew, thanks for being on Bulletproof Radio. This has been so fun to be able to ask all the questions I wanted to ask a military-grade biohacker. 
Uh, your website for your jet lag protocol, performanceintelligence.com. Yep. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming out of stealth on the show. I didn't realize that we were going to do that today, but thanks for for being out there and paying attention to this at these fine grain details because I think you'll help a lot of people because jet lag sucks for us all. Thanks, Dave. That's the goal. It's been awesome. If you like today's episode, there's a pretty good chance you like the other 500 episodes or so, but you probably don't have time to listen to them. Pick up a copy of Game Changers. I literally hired a statistics experts. We quantified all the answers. We sorted them out and figured out what are the patterns of high performers? What do they all agree on? What do they not agree on? And what are the laws that emerge from that so that you can pick the low-hanging fruit to get the most return on the time you spend performing better as a human being? And high-performance human beings don't just win races or get the big job. Everything you do, if you do it better or with less effort, can bring you joy. And that's what this is really about. So being a high-performance human being means being a high-performance parent, high-performance teacher, high-performance friend. It means being better at the things that you care about. And that's why I wrote the book. It's called Game Changers. Pick it up. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.